Good morning. Welcome to the sixth Sunday after Pentecost, July the 12th, 2020. Jesus promised that where two or three gathered in his name, he would be with them. And so we've been brought together this morning through technology, and we know that Jesus' spirit is present. May this be a time of great blessing. Thanks be to God. Our opening hymn this morning is um, it's an arrangement of uh, Voices United number 708, My Lord, What a Morning, arranged by Russell Robinson.
our call to worship this morning. Some of us may have downloaded this podcast to get closer to God. Some of us may have joined in listening without much sense of God or belief at all. But likely all of us have joined together wanting to know we matter and wanting to know that our journey through life is significant, that we make a difference. Indeed, many of us may have come wanting to make a difference in this world, for one of the unique things about a church is that it does provide avenues to offer help and make a difference, which may be hard to do just now. So we gather as community, a community of faithfulness, a community of dreaming of a better world, a community of reflection, of connection, and of mission. Let us worship God together. Our second hymn this morning is based on more voices. Number 138, My Love Colors Outside the Lines. together in praying a prayer of confession and commitment because black lives matter. Loving and forgiving God, we come to you today recognizing that in matters of ethnicity, we have no choice. We are who we are and who we've been made. Before you, we rejoice at our diversity and our hearts lift at your great vision of a worshiping multitude gathered from every nation, tribe, people, and language. But nonetheless, we recognize that our present reality is very far from this ideal. 
we have each of us been shaped by different forces. Some of us have been ground down whilst others have been built up. Some of us have been worn away or have become fractured and broken. Some of us have found life a burden rather than a joy. None of us have experienced the perfect life. Some of us have inherited power whilst others of us have inherited powerlessness. Some of us have been born white in a world where whiteness confers privilege. Others of us have been born black in a world where darker skin carries disadvantage. We know that this is not the world as you would have it to be, but it is our world and it has been our experience. None of us has asked for our skin color. None of us asked to be born the heirs of oppression. None of us asked to inherit power or powerlessness. So before you and in the name of Jesus Christ who loves all people equally regardless of ethnicity, gender, or social status, we come now to recommit ourselves to your vision of the world. We come now to pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and to offer ourselves once to live out your coming kingdom of equality and justice in our lives and in our churches and in our communities. And so we confess our own complicity in the status quo which divides and distorts humanity. As we pray, we ask that you will release us from guilt and will help us to find ways of laying down the burdens we have inherited. Help us to discover our true and rightful place within the new humanity created in Christ Jesus. All races together we confess that we have sinned and that we have fallen short of the glory of God. We confess our failures to speak out against injustice. We confess that those times when as individuals and as churches we have witnessed the fracturing of humanity along ethnic grounds and yet have remained silent. We confess those times when we have been the powerful ones and have chosen to withhold that power whilst another human being suffered. We confess that the sin of racist exclusion, the abuse of power to oppress and demean, May those of us who have, uh, have ourselves experienced exclusion be the first to speak up for others. May we create spaces for reconciliation. We pray for our churches. May they become places of reconciliation where each human soul is valued and where equality in Christ is a reality in our midst. Forgive us those times where we do not live out our calling as your people. May our churches model the new humanity of Christ to those in the communities where we live. We pray for our communities. Where there is division, may we bring restoration. Where there is inequality, may we bring justice. Where there is powerlessness, may we lift up the brokenhearted. Where there is damage, may we bring healing. Loving and forgiving God, hear our confession. Hear the desires of our hearts to be different. Grant us your forgiveness and remake us according to the likeness of Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our assurance of pardon. God's offer of forgiveness and acceptance, even when we do not deserve either, is one of God's most incredible surprises. We accept these surprises with wonder and thanks. We welcome God's wisdom for our lives. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from the third chapter of John, reading verses 1 through 17. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. 
He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said this to you. You must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. My sermon, if you wish, or monologue, is a monologue this morning, actually, and it's a monologue based on uh, the life of Nicodemus and also on our reading this morning from John 3, 1 to 17. You know, they say there's no fool like an old fool, and I'm afraid that's exactly what I've been. I've been so busy protecting our religion that I've been missing our God. I think that's something we all do from time to time. I mean, don't you think we spend a great deal of time worrying about protecting what we have, and in the meantime, we aren't recognizing how God is active in our lives? It seems to me that most of us are not great risk takers. We want our lives to be comfortable and safe and predictable. And we turn to our faith to provide us with that comfortable, safe and predictable life. We want our faith to be something that we can depend on, something we can rely on and something we can count on. So we take faith and make it into certainty in order to fill that need for assurance. At least that's been the traditional approach. It's easy to understand why we look for the certainty in our faith. It's comforting and reassuring to have something firm to hang on to in the midst of all that's changing in our world. I should explain, my name is Nicodemus. I'm a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70 men charged with the oversight and defense of our historic and honorable faith. The faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the faith of our fathers for hundreds and hundreds of years. Our task, handed down from generation to generation since Moses, is to provide guidance for the people in matters pertaining to God, to oversee worship and to confront anyone who tries to challenge the faith that we have defended, 
you know, the faith of the big three, the faith passed to us from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I came by my position naturally because I was born into one of the most respected families in Jerusalem, and I've had the benefit of Orthodox training since my youth. I was educated in the best synagogue schools, taught by the best minds in the service of the high priest, and learned the Torah as thoroughly as any man. I enjoyed the study of the law. After all, the law was God's gracious gift to us to tell us how to live our lives. Oh yes, my position, I'm a Pharisee. In my line of work, you're either a Pharisee or a Sadducee, and only Pharisees and Sadducees are members of the ruling council. There are no other sects represented. We Pharisees have enjoyed a remarkable growth in our numbers over the past 150 years or so, but the Sadducees, even though they are a minority in Jerusalem, are still powerful. After all, the high priest is a Sadducee. You're probably wondering what the difference is between a Pharisee and a Sadducee. <clears throat> well, the most important difference between our two groups is that we Pharisees believe that this life is not all there is to existence, while most Sadducees believe it is. As a Pharisee, we believe in a resurrection of the body when Yahweh finally comes to establish the kingdom on earth. We would argue that considering all the injustice in the world, the oppression that the children of Israel continually suffer at the hands of our first one, of first one nation and then another, there must be something beyond this life to right all the wrongs. Let's face it, there's so much injustice and oppression that is, that is suffering, that is suffered, which is not rectified in this life. And if our God is a God of justice, which is what we Pharisees believe, then something we have to be done about that. I believe justice will eventually be done, but not until the day of resurrection. We get our doctrine from the words of the prophets of old as well as some of the writings of ancient times, which we consider as inspired scripture. Our Sadducee brothers, on the other hand, accept no writing as scripture except that which our tradition says came from Moses, the Torah, which includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The subject of resurrection is not discussed by the Sadducees, and since it's not, They've always believed any thoughts of life after death were just pure speculation. But I myself find the concept of resurrection very appealing. Besides, why should we think that our God's mind is limited to only those things that were passed on to us through Moses? Perhaps there was just no reason to discuss resurrection with Moses, but it doesn't mean it can't be true. These things are just my thoughts and opinions, and my brothers on the Sanhedrin, they already know my position. I suppose because of my position as far as the Sanhedrin is concerned, I'm what they would call a liberal thinker. But you know, liberalism has its limits. I can accept the Sadducees and their understandings. I can accept the Essenes and their community down at the Quamran, who claim that only total separation from the world allows for a proper keeping of the law. And I can accept the zealots who demand that we overthrow the Roman invaders so that our allegiance won't be divided between our God and Caesar. But I just can't accept anyone who might do permanent damage to our historic understanding of our faith. After all, protecting the people from false prophets and erroneous teaching is part of my function as a member of the Sanhedrin. 
I may be more liberal than some, but that doesn't mean I'll be swept along by just any wind that blows. Now, long ago, I had the occasion to travel down to down by the Jordan to investigate a guy they called John the Baptizer. Our council got word that this John fellow was having a remarkable impact on just about anyone who had come in contact with him, and so some of us on council felt obliged to check out what he was teaching and to make sure he was following the orthodox traditions. John was an impressive fellow. He may have been influenced by the Essenes in his early days because his lifestyle was that of a, an ascetic. He wore only sackcloth, lived in the desert, and it seemed that he only ate things like honey and locusts. But with all that aside, John was a thunderous preacher, calling on people to repent of their sins and having, their under, having them undergo a baptism in the river like the baptism we Jews require of converts to our faith. The people were responding to John in droves, and even some of the Roman soldiers had been so inspired they were baptized by John. During one of these open-air sessions, some of us from council sought to question him as to his authority to do what he was doing. Some had wondered whether or not he might be the Messiah who would be the deliverer of our nation. Some who believed in that sort of thing wondered whether or not he could be the reincarnation of the prophet Elijah, and we all wanted to find out. As council members, we didn't mind that there were inherent uh, inerate, itinerant preachers all around but it was our responsibility for keeping tabs on them. John responded to our, our questions in a strange way. He admitted that he was neither the Messiah nor Elijah, but he claimed that he was, in his words, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, Make straight the way of the Lord. And then he said something very strange. He said there was someone coming after him who would be so great that he himself wouldn't be worthy enough to untie and loosen this man's sandals. Since we didn't fully understand what John was talking about, we left and returned home to report our findings to the Sanhedrin. Not long after, our attention became focused on someone who was making an even greater impact than John. In fact, word had it many of John's disciples were deserting him to follow this new teacher, a man named Jesus from Nazareth. I realize that it is a little incredible that a teacher of any stature should come from such a tiny little hole-in-the-wall town like Nazareth, but that's where this Jesus was from. Jesus wasn't the same as John. He didn't limit his activity to just preaching in the desert. He didn't specialize in baptism and didn't dress and eat like John. In fact, word had it that Jesus was in fact something of a party boy, eating and drinking with some of the worst riffraff in the country tax collectors and prostitutes, just to name a couple. But the biggest difference between Jesus and John was what Jesus did. Jesus was reported to be performing miracles, making the lame to walk and giving sight to the blind and even restoring life to the dead. The reports we were receiving were incredible stories. I doubt that the council would have been too concerned about this Jesus if it wasn't for one particular distressing incident. Just prior to the Passover, this Jesus and some of his followers came into the temple courts and started a riot. He didn't desecrate the altar or do permanent damage, but he upset some very powerful people. 
He went into the court of the Gentiles and overturned the tables of the money changers, those who were selling sacrificial animals. He even made a whip of cords and drove the merchants out, of the, out into the street. Jesus claimed he did it because these people were turning his father's house into a den of robbers. Now, I will admit that some of the prices charged for those services tended to be exorbitant, but, but was that a, any call to do what he did? Whether he knew it or not, these merchants were there by the express permission of the high priest. And indeed, some of them were the high priest's relatives, and so it's no wonder the council had to get involved. Some of my colleagues were pretty ticked off, and they went to Jesus to demand what, was, what authority he had to do such a thing. But the answers they came back with weren't clear at all. My colleagues knew of the reported miracles that Jesus had been performing, and so they pressured him to perform one right there in front of them. I suppose they thought that a miracle might help support Jesus' claim that what he was doing in the temple was legitimate. But Jesus told them that if they destroyed his, this temple, he would raise it again in three days. Of course, that meant no sense to my colleagues. After all, it had taken 46 years to build. At any rate, everyone was confused. I will admit that I may have been a little confused, but I wasn't confused about Jesus clearing the merchants out of the temple. If something that, it's something that should have been done long, long ago. What confused me, though, was Jesus' reference to my father's house. Devout Jews don't refer to God that way. They might say God of our fathers or our God, but certainly not my father. It made me wonder if this Jesus had some sort of special relationship with Yahweh, one different from the rest of us. Who is this Jesus, I wondered. So, last night I took it upon myself to find out. I hadn't been authorized by the Sanhedrin to do so, but I was respected enough as a council member that it would be all right with them if I did some further investigation on my own. So I took a risk, but I chose the evening hour to approach him because his days were so filled with his disciples and the crowds. At any rate, since childhood, the rabbis had taught me that the best learning comes at night. Our minds are more receptive with with the hustle and bustle of the day out of the way. Besides, it's also cooler. And, well, I know you're not stupid. You know why I went under the cover of darkness. I didn't want everyone in town to know what I was up to. Jesus and I, we sat together in the garden of the home where he was staying. The gentle breeze provided just the faint rustle of leaves in the trees above. The moon was bright, having only recently begun to lose its Passover fullness, and the stars twinkled in the clear desert sky. We talked softly, as was benefiting the atmosphere. I was very open with him. I said, Rabbi, we know you were a teacher who has come from God. For no one could do the miracles that you do if God were not with you. Share with me, if you will, the message God has sent you to bring. And he responded with something which at first sounded very strange. He said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Born again. I understood what he meant because within our Jewish tradition, we employed the same kind of imagery when dealing with some of those who became converts to Judaism. Even some of the pagan religions who baptized their new believers talked that that same way and called their converts reborn for all eternity. 
I knew that the prophets of old had told our nation of the necessity for a new heart among us, which was essentially the same thing. But it seemed to me that all that talk about becoming new again was just a lot of talk, and so I wanted to press Jesus more to try and fully understand what it was he was saying. I must confess that my response to Jesus made it sound like I understood him to be crudely liberal in this idea of new birth. I asked him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter their mother's womb a second time and be born again? But he moved right on. He answered, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of the water and of his mother's womb and the spirit of the heavenly father. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Do not be surprised at my statement about being born again. It's possible, difficult to understand perhaps, but entirely possible. After all, the wind is difficult to understand too. It blows whenever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it came from or where it's going. It's the same with the Spirit of God acting on people's hearts. You can't analyze it. You can only see the effects. Now Jesus was beginning to make sense to me. I wanted more. I asked, how can this be? And he responded by saying that it would only happen by trust. Faith. Faith in him. He recalled the incident when our ancestors' lives were saved from the plague of poisonous snakes and said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The Son of Man lifted up. What could that mean? I wish I could say I had been totally enlightened that evening there in the garden and all of the questions were instantly answered, but they weren't. So we said goodbye to each other and I left with Jesus probably having no idea if I understood him or not. But for the most part, I did understand what Jesus was telling me. That's why I said to you in the beginning that there's no fool like an old fool. I had spent so much of my life not understanding or realizing the power of God's Spirit to work miracles of change within the hearts and minds of those who would truly be God's own. There's something profound and wondrous about this Jesus, and I suspect that as time goes on, more and more people will come to know how special he is. By the time I reached my home last night, my heart was pounding, my breath was quickened, and as I realized that the Spirit of God was working within me, changing me, making me as if I had been born again, to use Jesus' phrase, and as I stood in the grassy courtyard of my home, I looked up toward the stars, stretched my arms to the heavens, and prayed, God of my fathers, give me that new life, for this old fool doesn't want to be an old fool anymore. You know, the new life that Jesus points us to is just as much a mystery as the wind can still be. There's something inherently certain, uncertain about what God is doing in our world to bring new life like a sudden wind that takes us by surprise. The newness that God brings to us is something that overwhelms us. When God's Spirit blows into our lives and we are out of our element and find ourselves exposed and vulnerable, what is it that makes us think that we can try to make faith into something safe and manageable and predictable? But that's precisely what faith is, a risk with no guarantee of anything. No matter how we try to make our life safe, comfortable, and predictable, there is something inherently uncertain about life. That uncertainty applies as much to our faith as it does to any other aspect of living. 
If we're going to take the risk of faith, we can only respond by opening ourselves to the new life that God brings. We can only respond by allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and changeable and to respond, here I am, Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us join together in prayer. God, we come into your presence with praise and thanksgiving for your faithful love. Your love never fails, not even when we turn away from you. When we ignore your invitation or desert you for gods of our own making, even then you do not abandon us but reach out again and again, inviting us back into relationship once more. As you welcome us, so you welcome our prayers. We bring them to you with confidence, knowing that you will hear and answer. We pray for the world you created and the people who share it with us. For countries caught up in war or violent conflict, for regions of the world recovering from hurricanes and flooding, for the starving people of Eastern Africa, for these and all the areas in our world where there is need and despair, Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for our country and for its people, for our government leaders, federal and local, for our judicial system, police forces, for our cities, towns, and rural communities, for employers and employees, for young and old, for all who are part of this great country of Canada. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for our local community, the people of this, this area that we live, for those who are unemployed, for those in prison, for those who are hungry, for those who are alone and afraid, for all of our neighbors, both known and unknown to us, who are suffering with COVID-19. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for our congregation, our brothers and sisters in Christ, for those who are ill, for those who are anxious about the future, for those struggling with their faith, for those who minister among us, for all your people in this place, Lord, hear our prayer. Pour out your spirit on us. Fix our hearts and minds on what is true and honorable and right. Give us the joy and peace that comes from knowing and doing your will. Keep us faithful to the call we have received in Christ Jesus our Lord, extending your loving invitation to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is um, its based on Isaiah 55. It's called You Shall Go Out With Joy. It's also found in our hymnary at 884. And so this is how we should go out this morning. You shall go out with joy and be led
O Holy One, bless the mask makers, those who create from cloth, flannel, elastic, wire, yarn, and buttons, the barriers that allow us to be out among others, yet keep them safe from what we might be silently harboring. Bless the mask wearers that we may see them as a sign of care and concern for others, that we may see your face beneath each mask. Bless us all that we may see that by covering our noses and mouth, we have opened our eyes and our hearts to one another. As you go from here into the week ahead, with whatever joys and challenges it holds, do not be discouraged or disheartened. Remember the glory that awaits you as a child of God. Hold on to that truth, live in that hope, and may the peace of God, the blessing of Jesus Christ, and the presence of the Holy Spirit be with you and among you. Remember, wash your hands, love your neighbors, and remember you're never alone. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our postlude this morning is from a singer by the name of Darlene Zetch. She writes music, Christian music of all kinds. And so we'll hear from her and uh, her group this morning. So have a great day. Have a great weekend. Remember that you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth before you. There will be shouts of joy and all the trees of the field will clap, will clap their hands. Everyone good? Yeah? I've asked a dear friend to come tonight, help us lead worship. <laughs> Beautiful to have you with us. Can I just remind you it's not an event, not a performance. What's beautiful about tonight is all these individual worshippers, you know, people who love God, who come together tonight. And I know our sound together. We're very, very powerful on the earth and in heaven. And I encourage you tonight to open your heart. Amen. Sing the song. If you don't know it, the lyrics are there.